Good day. You're listening to Radio Hara. I'm Stefan Christoph. On the broadcast today, I'm going to be featuring an interview with Mali Obamsuan. This is my monthly artist interview on Radio Hara. I feature a conversation with an artist uh, working at the intersections of struggles for liberation and the arts, at the intersection of arts and activism. Mali Obamsuan uh, has worked on an incredible album that explores questions of Indigenous land rights, identity, culture, language. It's a beautiful work, and I really um, am happy to have gotten the chance to talk with Mali about her process, her project, her collaborations um, across colonial borderlines. So here is my monthly artist interview for November on Radio Hara. Yeah, your music, it's, wow, there's a lot of different vibes going on, like um, with sort of an improvisational practice, it seems there's some sort of um, call and response. There's a very strong percussive aspect uh, that's outside of the sort of expected frameworks and you know i'm going to encourage people to actually take the time to hear the music which is the most important but maybe first to start if you could just introduce yourself and just talk a bit about this album that's coming out and uh, how it came about and yeah thanks definitely yeah so um my name is molly obamsoan i'm from odenak first nation or the abenaki nation of odenak uh, which is in southern quebec about an hour and a half from montreal and um yeah i i made an album that features some songs from my nation but also a lot of original compositions of my own and original compositions actually of people, ancestors of mine. So it's it's like a true Abenaki offering. Respect. Could you could you get into that a, a bit more? Like how, how did, because I, I, from what I heard, the it's a very contemporary rendition, but I can hear some like sort of rhythmic patterns that are pretty calling back gener- different generations uh, and different sort of musical traditions. How did you like bring about um, sort of contemporary renditions of this and the process of selecting old school tracks yeah um well i i will say that like a lot of it just kind of uh came together in serendipitously i guess you know um some of the songs like i mentioned were passed down actually by members of my family or recorded by members of my family in the last hundred years um but I grew up in the improvised music tradition, um, creative music or, or jazz music, you could call it as well. And, um, but specifically sort of post Ornette Coleman era jazz music. And so um, that, that music tradition has a lot, um, a lot to offer in terms of uh, how we think about melody, the relationship between melody and rhythm, um, then them not having to always be lock set into one another, um, which actually feels like a very traditional and indigenous framework, musically speaking. You know, we we have a lot of these incredible um, songs all across Indian country. I would say where um, you know 
it features a hand drum or a rattle or some other kind of percussive element and we have these melodies that really hang over the bar line and have their own kind of momentum to them and and this is a, a musical idea that's been identified as indigenous and it's been identified in the style of Mildred Bailey of course who was one of the first famous indigenous jazz singers and the first woman to ever sing in front of a, a big band so like a really kind of foundational person in the jazz tradition um and I think you can really hear those melodic and rhythmic um ideas playing out in in a lot of the compositions on my record so I imagine like some of the processes of bringing the album together started before you were even aware that you were making an album. Um, you talked about like members of your family. Um, that brings up also in a point, a very key point, I would imagine, of sort of the idea of like conceptualization as happening in a, in a cultural um, atmosphere that isn't like oh, let's make an album, but actually it's from this community-oriented process and family-oriented process that um, is maybe a bit difficult to translate into the sort of mainstream music world language of what an album is. <laughs> yeah, definitely. I mean, some of these songs are, like, there isn't even a date to where what time period they come from because they're that old, right? And we're talking about a a community that's been here since the Ice Age. You know, that's like 12,000, 13,000 longer ago, right? Years ago. And uh, and so some of these songs, we we can't even give an origin of, of the song, um, temporally at least, right? And which is incredible. But, you know, so you could say that those songs made it onto the album and they've been ready for that album for 12,000 years. Um, yeah, it's, it's pretty cool. Um, but, but I did start writing this, uh, some of the pieces on this album in 2018 when I was doing mentorship with, um, with uh, my friend Taylor Hobynum, who's the cornet player and co-producer of this record. Um, and I was definitely just kind of discovering um, indigenous like what what are indigenous musical ideas and like how have they influenced like musics of the americas today you know contemporary music and and actually there's a lot of influence that has come from indigenous communities um which is really amazing and we're still kind of uncovering all that but but um i had a a, a bass teacher that pointed out to me something uh, you know years ago that was like oh you know like I was playing, I was listening to this other like indigenous uh, melody and I, I noticed this thing, like basically just like I, I noticed a trend in the way that the melodies work and and him just saying that to me was like kind of an epiphany for me because we're, I think we're all really taught to like A, not even think about indigenous people, let alone the um, modernity and, you know, contemporary essence of our cultures but but um if you if you if one could take stock of indigenous musical ideas you'd find them all through jazz through rock and roll through like all the contemporary musics that we hear today yeah maybe let's underline that point a bit about sort of the influence of indigenous um, musical frameworks in a contemporary setting often these um, modes are historicized and you know you can see all these like sort of anthropological colonial readings of like what 
culture is and that's so distant from like the idea of the profound impact of indigenous music on contemporary um, cultural expression from jazz to improvisation and one one aspect and, and of course rock music but one aspect that you mentioned that maybe could be also interesting to draw out a bit is the, the improvisational aspect because people will rightfully so associate a lot of like creative music free music uh, with um, black traditions and liberation music and that whole process which is so also so much a part of it but yeah just building on that absolutely yeah definitely and that association is fully fair and I think where people are kind of missing it is that in so many of those contexts where jazz and blues and improvisation uh, improvised musics were created it was also like a mixing community right of black and indigenous people and so a lot of these people that you can identify um throughout the the um evolution of jazz or blues were both black and indigenous right and i think that's like huge because in a nation or a continent, right? That uh, where, where we're really not encouraged to think about um, um, intersections. I guess you know we're not encouraged to to celebrate, especially people oppressed peoples who have come together to create beauty. Um, I think we all need to kind of like re-examine our own. Uh, education around that you know and consider that we probably missed some things along the way uh yeah yeah there's like there's so many examples of like amazing um intersections like that in the development of the music like charlie Patton or um don cherry who co-invented free jazz right you could say he's at least credited for that in ornette's band and um, Charles Mingus had some indigenous ancestry, you know, but but in a lot of cases that it was, um, if we're thinking about the 1900s, you know, there were all of these people in the jazz world, in the blues world, where their parents were on the reservation, you know, it wasn't like distant ancestry. We think of like Oscar Pettiford, uh, who's a bassist, who was like very outspoken about his, his indigenous um, roots, right? So the connection between these sort of like broad historical cultural reflections and your record i would imagine your record is shaped by some of that but also shaped by like you wanting to make a record (laughs) and like and like where you're at personally and stories that you're telling that aren't necessarily like about like a very specific statement but also about like where you're at as a person and as an artist so maybe we could talk a bit about that also yes thank you i appreciate that that point and yeah i definitely wasn't like i'm gonna make a record explicitly so i have a reason to talk about like you know these these politics of the founding of jazz or whatnot um but yeah i mean i I think the way that the album came together, it's it's really reflective of the period of my life that I'm in right now, where I'm really wanting to tell the story of my community, um, you know, and that's like over the course of time. It's not just like our ancient story. It's not just our modern story. It's the, the whole trajectory as I can understand it right now. And of course, I'm a student of our history as well. And and I'm growing as well in that way. And, and musically, I'm growing, but I, 
I feel like it's a really, um, I feel proud of it as my first step in my first statement as a composer. Um, it is my, yeah, my first, um, my band leading and composer debut as a, as my own, under my own name. So, so that's exciting, but, um, there are parts of the suite that that address um, my specific reservation community. Um, there are parts of the suite that address um, the role of the Catholic Church and the role of traditional spiritual teachings and the kind of interplay between the two. And I think um, that's something that it's it's hard to talk about for Indigenous communities. But so in almost every case, there is. Um, both are present, you know, in the way that our community uh, engages with the spiritual, right? And and there is a lot to be unpacked there in, in Canada and in the U.S., you know? And, um, and then there's parts of the suite that are really um, dealing with the, the current sort of experience of being the age that I am as an Indigenous woman, um, you know, being expected as someone in my mid twenties, you know, to, to be moving into the next phase of my life and to maybe be having kids or to, you know, be being asked questions about my blood, right. By the government as being like, that's a part of your considerations of romance in your mid twenties as an indigenous woman. Right. And it's like a really intense, uh, burden that I think doesn't get talked about for, for indigenous people, but whether you're in the States and you're dealing with blood quantum policies or you're in Canada and you're dealing with the Indian Act, right? Um, so that's the last, uh, the last movement of the suite is, um, yeah. And it ends with a, a chant that I wrote with my partner uh, in the Penobscot language. Uh, and the chant says, I stand defiantly ready to fight. We honor our matriarchs and we honor our grandmothers. Respect, respect. So on this point uh, that you just mentioned, people probably, some people listening to this show will be a bit aware knowing that there's all these interventions that happen around uh, the states of the United States and the state of Canada trying to define what is Indigenous and what is not. Um, And uh, yeah, I mean, there's so much pushback against that, but there's also the very there's the distance between the fact that there is a pushback and the fact that policy hasn't changed. Like it, people might be like, okay, yeah, that's, that's really definitely an oppressive, violent situation. But in so many cases, especially like, I I don't know the details of U S policy, but in Canada, like a lot of, um, questions around like how indigeneity is defined by the colonial state remain. Like, even though, you would assume like, you know, Justin Trudeau is parading as this woke, woke PM, but the, those sort of like policy level changes that actually affect people's lives often haven't taken place. Certainly. I mean, you have to remember too, that Trudeau's, what his grandfather wrote the white papers, you know, like <laughs> it's definitely, um, uh, an inheritance of his to, to, uh, not, really improve things through policy uh, for indigenous people but that's just me maybe you'll have to cut that off the radio but (laughs) that's true and it's not even his grandfather it's it's his father father. yeah yeah okay i thought it might have been closer yeah so yeah i mean it's 
it's similar in the states and i think the the biggest point too is not that like the government like got it wrong and needs to to make the definition right it's that the government the the federal government should have no say in how we define our communities at all right it is that's not sovereignty right indigenous nations are nations and we're sovereign and that means that we get to define and our um statements and our definitions need to be respected because if we you know in in the say in the situation in Canada too right like it's so foreign and the community the reality of indigenous communities is so um hard to conceptualize for people who aren't from them that no matter what they do they're going to do something wrong <laughs> you know if they're not from those communities and they're passing laws about us right and i think that's that's really clear with the um policies around like self identification for instance right like a lot of eastern nations like mine are dealing with um ethnic broad and and race shifting right you can call it and you know it might look like a progressive move to say well you just have to self identify and there we stand with you right but that's actually doesn't align with how the nations feel so yeah i mean that's just a very specific example but the larger fact stands that we're sovereign and that means that our policies should define us thanks so much for sharing all of that um in terms of the process around like uh also like nations defining um on a community based level like who like people can be tracked right like in in a, in not in a and not in a negative sense but like we you know I work with the cinema organization in in Montreal we're showing this documentary called Daughter of a Lost Bird which is about an indigenous woman and the filmmaker is also indigenous and she's trying to like seek out her birth mother and one comment in the film is about how indigenous communities um are able to sort of establish very clearly who's part of the community through lineage right um and i think often like that whole process is so removed from those discussions that you brought up which are you know the government sort of being accusatory to say like um to su- have such a control over like who um is able to identify and as you talked about the loss of sovereignty um so how does this album like cuz you you mentioned the chant at the end of the album like trying to translate all that into music is a lot but also there's all the emotional layers of dealing with that right like cuz there's the the written word but there's also the emotional reality right and often music can address stuff in that world in a more effective way maybe like i don't know if that speaks to you at all yeah definitely i think that i think it's interesting like a lot of indigenous artists that i know um they they do they do art to like you know communicate that emotional and spiritual part um and there's always a counterpart to it that is like a list of very specific policies that affect our lives intimately and that is it's so real and i you know one of my favorite um indigenous artists is louise erdrich who i think does this amazingly well right she's a novelist and she'll she'll tell these like just gut-wrenching 
very intimate, amazing stories and also just drop in like, yeah, and that's because of the Allotment Act of 18, (laughs) whatever. And like, this is because of the, you know, uh, Indian Child Welfare Act, right? And like, because it really is that way, I think for, um, for non-native or like settler descended communities, like the law is kind of this like alternate plane that they don't have to think about that much. Like every once in a while it affects you in a specific way, but, but it's not like your whole existence. Um, but for indigenous communities, like we, everything that is confusing about the way that our realities are, you can typically point to like one or two or three specific government policies that makes it that way. And so like a lot of us have to be like, you know, we basically like could probably like skip a few grades in law school, basically just for being indigenous and like knowing about our reality, right? Um, but that being said, yeah, the album, like I would love to not have to talk about the policies that like are the like subtext of the album, you know, but that's just the existence that we, we have. Um, but I do hope that it is relatable to people of all experiences and especially of all like colonized experiences. And that, that was a big part of the, the spiritual emotional space that we were working in with my band when we were in the studio, you know, I was really encouraging my band mates, um, to channel their ancestors and like the last 500 years of their ancestors lines, you know, and, and I think you can really hear that in the music. Wow, thanks for sharing that. I, I, uh, as part of this, just one second, okay, as part of the series, um, I spoke with Samantha Crane, um, the singer, and she was talking about, yeah, she was talking a lot about how there's that sort of tension between like recalling um, specific histories and like writing protest tracks, right? And she has a few like We Will Remain that are very um, clear. And then also Samantha Crane has a lot of work that's very much about her life and her experience. And um, and yeah, in, in the conversation it was a lot about like sort of navigating those two things as an artist. And so I really appreciated how you drew connections between those two experiences. But yeah, I don't know any more reflections about sort of the realities of composing when it's like, you have all that um, context that is so essential to identity, to personhood, but then also, you know, a lot of tracks, um, you know, Samantha's, for example, are about like her experience or like um, uh, romance or like uh, coming to terms with being an artist, finding an art, artist voice, etc. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think they're never totally able to be disentangled, right? But but it is I think on this particular album of mine, like it's it's a lot more um part of the concept, right? Is like, yeah, exactly. Like well, this is a resistance album in that like I'm really even if I'm just talking about my emotional experience, you know, through sound, like typically not the not the tracks with voices, but um it's it's in response, right? It is the defiance that is in that last chant. Like I stand defiantly. This album is me standing defiantly, you know, against some specific things that are maybe or maybe not identified verbally. Um, I think in a lot of, uh, so I'm also a singer songwriter and, you know, I write 
rock songs and and I think in that world I would probably have a lot more in common with Samantha in terms of yeah you know there's uh there's songs that are about getting blocked on social media (laughs) right like not on Sweet Tooth but on my other albums you know that's definitely we could get into the the less serious but still very like emotionally (laughs) specific yeah yeah it's always interesting to sort of think about that dynamic of trying to like work with realities where it's like there's an expectation to like put forward a message but then at the same time there's like life that that is shaped by those things but it's also Mm -hmm. not always the first thing you know Mm -hmm. exactly Um, well, I want to leave some space on the show, which is half an hour to play a track. So what track, what track should we hear? Oh my gosh. Um, (laughs) I am really excited about Lineage. Um, yeah, that's, that's a track that I love and I feel like it's a good, I mean, it's technically like attached to Odina, (laughs) um, Mm -hmm. on, if you hear it, like. You know, if you're playing it cover to cover, but um, yeah, that's that's one I think is good. <laughs> Molly Obamswin, thanks so much for talking today. Thank you so much. This has been really fun. Cool, nice. That was an interview with Molly Obamswin, who is a musician, composer, and her latest works explore questions of Indigenous language, culture, identity in this moment in 2022. Every month I feature an artist interview here on Radio Haro, and this month it was a pleasure to speak with Malio Bomsuin. You can find all the archived interviews that I've produced for Radio Haro on my SoundCloud page, which is soundcloud.com slash freecityradio. Look up Radio Haro interviews Thank you again to Mali for being on the broadcast today, and I'll go out with some of her latest work. I'll speak to you next month here on Radio Hara, Free Palestine. Mm-hmm.